0: I've made the potentially controversial decision to skip Book 2, Chapter 2, The Greve. It's an architectural description of a medieval square in Paris. If you're interested, you can go and read it on your own. I say controversial because some say that the central character of this novel is Notre Dame Cathedral itself, and Gothic architecture. In some sense, that might be true but I can tell you it's not at all what interests me about the novel. So I intend to abridge this novel with an eye to the characters and the plot. But I will always let you know when I cut something out, in case you don't want to miss it. So, Notre Dame de Paris, by Victor Hugo, Book 3, Chapter 3, Besos para Golpes, Kisses for Blows. When Pierre Gringoire reached the greve, he was benumbed. He had come by way of the miller's bridge to avoid the mob on Exchange Bridge and Jean Forbeau's flags. But the wheels of all the bishop's mills had bespattered him as he crossed, and his coat was soaked. Moreover, it seemed to him that the failure of his play had made him more sensitive to cold than ever. He therefore made haste to draw near the bonfire, which still blazed gloriously in the middle of the square. But a considerable crowd formed a circle round about it. Damned Parisians, said he to himself, for Gringoire, like all true dramatic poets, was given to monologues. There they stand, blocking my way to the fire, and yet I greatly need a good warm chimney corner. My shoes leak and all those cursed mills have dripped upon me. Deuce take the bishop of Paris and his mills. I would really like to know what a bishop wants with a mill. Does he expect to turn miller? If he is merely waiting for my curse, I give it to him cheerfully, and to his cathedral and his mills into the bargain. Now just let's see if any of those bores will disturb themselves for me. What on earth are they doing there? Warming themselves indeed, a fine amusement, watching to see a hundred faggots burn, a fine sight, truly. Looking more closely, he saw that the circle was far larger than was necessary for the crowd to warm themselves at the royal bonfire, and that the large number of spectators was not attracted solely by the beauty of the hundred blazing faggots. In the vast space left free between the crowd and the fire, a young girl was dancing. Whether this young girl was a human being, or a fairy, or an angel, was more than Gringoire, cynic philosopher and sarcastic poet though he was, could for a moment decide. So greatly was he fascinated by the dazzling vision. She was not tall, but seemed to be, so proudly erect did she hold her slender figure. She was brown but it was evident that by daylight her skin must have that lovely golden gleam, peculiar to Spanish and Roman beauties. Her tiny foot was Andalusian, too, for it fitted both snugly and easily into its dainty shoe. She danced, she turned, she twirled, upon an antique Persian carpet thrown carelessly beneath her feet. And every time her radiant figure passed, as she turned, her great black eyes sent forth lightning-flashes. Upon her every eye was riveted, every mouth gaped wide, and in very truth, as she danced to the hum of the tambourine, which her round and graceful arms held high above her head, slender, quick and active as any wasp, with smoothly-fitting golden bodice, her many-colored full skirts, her bare shoulders, her shapely legs, from which her skirts now and then swung away, her black hair, her eyes of flame, she seemed more than mortal creature. Indeed, thought Gringoire, she is a salamander, a nymph, a goddess, a bacchante from Mount Minalis. At this moment one of the salamander's tresses was loosened, and a bit of brass which had been fastened to it fell to the ground. "'Alas, no,' said he, "'she's a gypsy.' "'All illusion had vanished.' "'She began to dance once more. "'She picked up two swords, "'and balancing them by their points on her forehead, "'she twirled them in one direction "'while she herself revolved in another. "'She was, indeed, but a gypsy girl. "'But great as was Gringoire's disenchantment,' The picture was far from being destitute of all charm and beauty. The bonfire lit it up with a crude red light, which flickered brightly upon the circle of surrounding figures, and the young girl's brown face, casting wan reflections, blended with alternating shadows into the farthest corners of the square. On one side upon the black and weather-beaten front of the pillar-house, and on the other Upon the crossbeam of the stone gibbet. Among the myriad faces dyed scarlet by the flames, there was one which seemed absorbed even beyond all the rest in gazing at the dancer. It was the face of a man, austere, calm, and somber. This man, whose dress was hidden by the crowd about him, seemed not more than thirty five years old, and yet he was bald. He had but a few gray and scanty locks of hair about his temples. His broad, high forehead was already beginning to be furrowed with wrinkles, but in his deep-set eyes sparkled an extraordinary spirit of youth, an ardent love of life and depth of passion. He kept them fixed on the gypsy, and while the giddy young damsel danced and fluttered to the delight of all, his thoughts seemed to become more and more melancholy. From time to time a smile and a sigh met upon his lips, but the smile was far sadder than the sigh. The young girl stopped at last, breathless, and the people applauded eagerly. "'Jolly,' said the gypsy. Then Gringoire saw a pretty little white goat active, alert, and glossy, with gilded horns, gilded hoofs, and a gilded collar, which he had not before observed, and which had hitherto remained quietly crouching on a corner of the carpet, watching its mistress as she danced. "'Jolly,' said the dancer, "'it's your turn now.' And sitting down, she gracefully offered the goat her tambourine. "'Jolly,' she added, "'what month in the year is this?' The goat raised its forefoot and struck once upon the tambourine. It was indeed the first month of the year. The crowd applauded. Jolly, resumed the young girl, turning her tambourine another way. What day of the month is it? Jolly lifted his little golden hoof and struck it six times upon the tambourine. Jolly, continued the daughter of Egypt, with still another twist of the tambourine. What time of day is it? Jolly gave seven blows, and at the same instant the clock on the pillar house struck seven. The people were lost in wonder. There is sorcery in this, said a forbidding voice from the throng. It was the voice of the bald man, who had never taken his eyes from the gypsy. She trembled and turned towards him, but fresh plaudits broke out, and drowned the surly exclamation. They even effaced it so completely from her mind that she went on questioning her goat. Jolly, how does Master Guichard Grand Remy, the captain of the city pistoliers, walk in the procession at Candlemas? Jolly rose on his hind legs and began to bleat. "'walking as he did so with an air of such polite gravity "'that the whole ring of spectators burst into a laugh "'at this parody of the selfish devotion "'of the Captain of Pistoliers. "'Jolly,' continued the young girl, "'encouraged by her increasing success, "'show us how Master Jacques Charmalou, "'king's attorney in the ecclesiastical court, preaches. "'The goat sat up and began to bleat.' "'waving his forefeet in so strange a fashion "'that, except for the bad French and bad Latin, "'Jacques Charmelou himself stood before you, "'gesture, accent, and attitude.' "'And the crowd applauded louder than before. "'Sacrilege! Profanation!' "'exclaimed the voice of the bald-headed man. "'The gypsy turned again. "'Ah,' said she, "'it is that ugly man.' Then, projecting her lower lip beyond the upper one, she made a little face which seemed habitual with her, pirouetted on her heel, and began to collect the gifts of the multitude in her tambourine. Big pieces of silver, little pieces of silver, pennies and farthings reigned into it. Suddenly she passed Gringoire. He put his hand in his pocket so heedlessly that she stopped. "'The devil,' said the poet, as he found reality at the bottom of his pocket, that is to say, an empty void. But there stood the pretty girl, looking at him with her big eyes, holding out her tambourine, and waiting. Gringoire was in an agony. If he had had the wealth of Peru in his pocket, he would certainly have given it to the dancing girl. But Gringoire did not possess the wealth of Peru— and moreover america had not then been discovered luckily an unexpected event came to his rescue will you be gone you gypsy grasshopper cried a sharp voice from the darkest corner of the square the young girl turned in terror this was not the voice of the bald-headed man it was a woman's voice the voice of a malicious and bigoted person however the cry which alarmed the gypsy delighted a band of roving children. "'It's the recluse of the tour Land, they shouted with riotous laughter. "'It's the nun scolding. Hasn't she had her supper? Let's carry her some bits from the city sideboard.' All rushed towards the pillar house. Gringoire seized the occasion of the dancer's distress to disappear. The children's shouts reminded him that he too had not supped. He therefore hastened to the sideboard. But the little scamps had better legs than he. When he arrived, they had swept the table clear. There was not even a paltry cake at five cents the pound remaining. Nothing was left on the wall but the delicate fleur-de-lis, twined with rose branches, painted in 1434 by Matthew Beterne. That was a meager repast. It's a tiresome matter to go to bed without supper. It is still less agreeable to have no supper and not to know where to find a bed. This was Gringoire's condition. No bread, no shelter. He was goaded on every hand by necessity, and he found necessity very crabbed and cross. He had long since discovered the truth that Jupiter created mankind in a fit of misanthropy and that throughout a wise man's life fate keeps his philosophy in a state of siege. As for himself, the blockade had never been so complete. He heard his stomach sounding a parley, and he thought it very improper for an evil destiny to overcome his philosophy by famine. He was becoming more and more absorbed in these melancholy reflections when a peculiar, although melodious, song suddenly roused him from them. The young gypsy girl was singing. Her voice was like her dancing, like her beauty. It was charming and not to be defined, possessing a pure and sonorous quality, something ethereal and airy. There was a constant succession of bursts of melody, of unexpected cadences then of simple phrases mingled with shrill, sibilant notes, now runs and trills which would have baffled a nightingale, but which never ceased to be harmonious, then softly undulating octaves, rising and falling, like the bosom of the youthful singer. Her fine features expressed every caprice of her song with singular flexibility, from the most lawless inspiration to the chastest dignity. At one instant she seemed a mad woman, and at the next, a queen. The words which she sang were in a language unknown to Gringoire, and apparently one with which she was not herself familiar. So little connection had the expression which she lent her song with the meaning of the words. Thus these four lines in her mouth became wildly gay. A coffer of great richness in a pillar's heart was found. Within it lay new banners, with figures to astound, and a moment later the tone in which she uttered the words, the Moorish horsemen, without being able to move, with swords and at their necks ready crossbows, brought the tears into Gringoire's eyes. And yet her song was full of joy, and she seemed to sing like a bird, from sheer happiness and freedom from care. The gypsy's song had troubled Gringoire's reverie, but as the swan troubles the water. He listened in a sort of ecstasy which rendered him oblivious of all else. It was the first instant, for some hours, in which he had felt no pain. The moment was brief. The same woman's voice which had cut short the girl's dance now interrupted her song. "'Will you hold your tongue, you infernal cricket?' she cried, still from the same dark corner of the square. The poor cricket stopped short. Gringoire clapped his hands to his ears. "'Oh!' he exclaimed. "'Cursed be that rusty saw which breaks the lyre!' And the other listeners grumbled with him. "'Deuce take the nun,' said more than one." and the invisible old Marplot, might have had reason to repent of her aggressions, had not their thoughts been diverted at that very moment by the procession of the Lord of Misrule, which, having traversed many a street and square, now appeared in the greve, with all its torches and all its noise. This procession, which our readers saw as it started from the palace, had taken shape as it marched. "'enlisting all the available vagabonds and scamps and idle thieves in Paris, "'so that it presented quite a respectable appearance when it reached the greve. First came the barnstormers, "'the chief cackling cove at the head, on horseback, "'with his aides on foot, holding his stirrup and bridle. "'Behind walked the rest of the barnstormers, male and female, "'with their little ones clamoring on their backs.' all men, women, and children, in rags and tatters. Then came the thieves' brotherhood, that is, all the robbers in France, ranged according to their degree, the least expert coming first. Thus they filed along four by four, armed with the various insignia of their degrees. In this singular faculty, most of them maimed, some halt, some with but one arm, were shoplifters, mock pilgrims, tramps who pretended to have been bitten by wolves, dummy chuckers, thimble riggers, sham Abrams, Jeremy diddlers, sham cripples, mumpers, pollyards, showfall pitchers, rogues pretending to have been burned out, cadgers, old soldiers, high flyers, swell mobsmen, goniffs, flash coves, a list long enough to weary Homer himself. In the center of the conclave of goniffs and flashcoves, might dimly be distinguished the head of the thieves' brotherhood, the Grand Coeur, or King of Rogues, squatting in a small cart drawn by two big dogs. After the fraternity of thieves came the Empire of Galilee. Guillaume Rousseau, Emperor of the Galilees, marched majestic in his purple robes stained with wine preceded by mountebank's fighting and dancing pyrrhic dances, surrounded by his mace-bearers, tools, and the clerks of the court of exchequer. Last came the Bassoche, the corporation of lawyers' clerks, with their sheaves of maize crowned with flowers, their black gowns, their music worthy of a witch's sabbath, and their huge yellow wax candles. In the midst of this throng, the high officials of the fraternity of fools bore upon their shoulders a barrow more heavily laden with tapers than the shrine of Saint-Genevieve in the time of plague. And upon this barrow rode resplendent, with crozier, cope, and mitre, the new lord of misrule, the bell-ringer of Notre-Dame, Quasimodo, the humpback. Each division of this grotesque procession had its own peculiar music the barnstormers drew discordant notes from their balafos and their African tabers. The thieves, a far-from-musical race, were still using the vial, the cowherd's horn, and the quaint rhubabe of the twelfth century. Nor was the Empire of Galilee much more advanced. Their music was almost wholly confined to some wretched rebeck dating back to the infancy of the art, still imprisoned within the re la Mie but it was upon the lord of misrule that all the musical riches of the period were lavished in one magnificent cacophony. There were treble rebecks, counter-tenor rebecks, tenor rebecks, to say nothing of flutes and brass instruments. Alas, our readers may remember that this was Gringoire's orchestra. It is difficult to convey any idea of the degree of proud and sanctimonious rapture which Quasimodo's hideous and painful face had assumed during the journey from the palace to the greve. This was the first thrill of vanity which he had ever felt. Hitherto he had known nothing but humiliation, disdain of his estate, and disgust for his person. Therefore, deaf as he was, he enjoyed— like any genuine pope, the plaudits of that mob which he had hated because he felt that it had hated him. What mattered it to him that his subjects were a collection of fools, cripples, thieves, and beggars? They were still subjects, and he a sovereign. And he took seriously all the mock applause, all the satirical respect with which it must be confessed There was a slight mixture of very real fear in the hearts of the throng, for the humped back was strong, for the bandy legs were nimble, for the deaf ears were malicious, three qualities which tempered the ridicule. Moreover, we are far from fancying that the new lord of misrule realized clearly either his own feelings or those which he inspired. THE SPIRIT LODGED IN THAT IMPERFECT BODY WAS NECESSARILY SOMETHING DULL AND INCOMPLETE. THEREFORE, WHAT HE FELT AT THIS INSTANT WAS ABSOLUTELY VAGUE, INDISTINCT, AND CONFUSED TO HIM. JOY ONLY PIERCED THE CLOUD, PRIDE PREVAILED. THE SOMBER AND UNHAPPY FACE WAS RADIANT. IT WAS NOT, THEREFORE, WITHOUT SURPRISE AND FRIGHT that at the moment when Quasimodo, in the semi-intoxication, passed triumphantly before the pillar house, the spectators saw a man dart from the crowd and snatch from his hands, with a gesture of rage, his gilded crozier, the badge of his mock papacy. This man, this rash fellow, was no other than the bald-headed character who, the instant before, mingling with the group about the gypsy girl, had chilled her blood with his words of menace and hatred. He was clad now in ecclesiastical garb. Just as he stepped forward from the crowd, Gringoire, who had not noticed him until then, recognized him. "'Why?' said he with an exclamation of amazement. "'It is my master in Hermes, Don Claude Frollo, the archdeacon. "'What the devil does he want with that ugly one-eyed man?' He'll be swallowed up alive. Indeed, a cry of terror rose. The terrible Quasimodo flung himself headlong from his barrow, and the women turned away their eyes that they might not see the archdeacon rent limb from limb. He made but one bound towards the priest, gazed at him, and fell on his knees. The priest tore from him his tiara, broke his crozier, and rent his tinsel cope. Quasimodo still knelt with bowed head and clasped hands. Then followed between them a strange dialogue in signs and gestures, for neither spoke. The priest erect, angry, threatening, imperious. Quasimodo, prostrate, humble, suppliant." and yet it is very certain that Quasimodo could have crushed the priest with his thumb. At last the archdeacon, rudely shaking Quasimodo's powerful shoulder, signed to him to rise and follow. Quasimodo rose. Then the fraternity of fools, their first stupor over, strove to defend their pope so abruptly dethroned. The thieves, the galilees, and all the lawyer's clerks yelped about the priest. Quasimodo placed himself before the priest, put the muscles of his fists in play, and glared at his assailants, gnashing his teeth like an enraged bear. The priest resumed his wonted somber gravity, beckoned to Quasimodo, and withdrew silently. Quasimodo walked before him. "'scattering the crowd as he passed. "'When they had made their way through the people and the square, "'a swarm of curious idlers attempted to follow them. "'Quasimodo then took up the position of rear guard "'and followed the archdeacon backwards, "'short, thick-set, crabbed, monstrous, bristling, "'gathering himself together, licking his tusks, "'growling like a wild beast,' and driving the crowd before him in waves, with a gesture or a look. They vanished down a dark, narrow street, where none dared venture after them. So effectually did the mere image of Quasimodo grinding his teeth bar the way. Strange enough, said Gringoire, but where the deuce am I to find supper? Chapter 4 THE INCONVENIENCES OF FOLLOWING A PRETTY WOMAN IN THE STREET AT NIGHT Gringoire determined to follow the gypsy girl at any risk. He had seen her go down the Rue de la Coutellerie with her goat. He therefore went down the Rue de la Coutellerie. "'Why not?' said he to himself. Gringoire, being a practical philosopher of the streets of Paris, had observed that nothing is more favorable to reverie than the pursuit of a pretty woman when you don't know where she is going. In this voluntary surrender of your own free will, this caprice yielding to another caprice, all unconscious of submission, there is a mixture of odd independence and blind obedience. A certain happy medium between slavery and liberty, which pleased Gringoire, a mind essentially mixed, undetermined and complex, carrying everything to extremes, forever wavering betwixt all human propensities and neutralizing them the one by the other. He frequently compared himself to Muhammad's tomb, attracted in opposite directions by two lodestones and perpetually trembling between top and bottom, between the ceiling and the pavement, between descent and ascent, between the zenith and the nadir. If Gringoire were living now, what a golden mean he would observe between the classic and romantic schools. But he was not sufficiently primitive to live three hundred years, and tis a pity. His absence leaves a void but too deeply felt today. However, nothing puts a man in a better mood for following people in the street, especially when they happen to be women a thing Gringoire was always ready to do, than not knowing where he is to sleep. He accordingly walked thoughtfully along behind the young girl, who quickened her pace and urged on her pretty goat, as she saw the townspeople were all going home, and the taverns, the only shops open upon this general holiday, were closing. "'After all,' thought he, "'she must have a lodging somewhere. Gypsies are generous.' who knows? And there were some very pleasant ideas interwoven with the points of suspension that followed his mental reticence. Still, from time to time, as he passed the last belated groups of citizens shutting their doors, he caught fragments of their talk, which broke the chain of his bright hypotheses. Now it was two old men chatting together. "'Master Thibaut Fernique, do you know it is cold?' Gringoire had known this since the winter first set in. "'Yes, indeed, Master Boniface d'Isolme. Are we going to have another winter like the one we had three years ago, in Eighty, when wood cost eight pence the measure?' "'Bah! that's nothing, Master Thibault, to the winter of 1407, when it froze from St. Martin's Day to Candlemass,' and with such fury that the parliamentary registrar's pen froze in the great chamber between every three words, which was a vast impediment to the registration of justice. Farther on, two neighbor women gossiped at their windows. The candles in their hands flickered faintly through the fog. "'Did your husband tell you of the accident, Mademoiselle La Boudrac? "'No. What was it, Mademoiselle Tourconte?' The horse of Monsieur Gilles Gaudin, the notary from the Chatelet, took fright at the Flemish and their procession, and knocked down Master Filippo Avriot, lay-brother of the Celestines. Is that really so? Indeed, it is. And such a plebeian animal! It's a little too much. If it had only been a cavalry horse, it would not be so bad. And the windows were closed but Gringoire had already lost the thread of his ideas. Luckily, he soon recovered and readily resumed it, thanks to the gypsy girl, thanks to Jolly, who still went before him. Two slender, delicate, charming creatures, whose tiny feet, pretty forms, and graceful manners he admired, almost confounding them in his contemplation thinking them both young girls from their intelligence and close friendship, considering them both goats from the lightness, agility, and grace of their step. But the streets grew darker and more deserted every instant. The curfew had long since sounded, and it was only at rare intervals that a passenger was seen upon the pavement or a light in any window. Gringoire had involved himself by following in the footsteps of the gypsy, in that inextricable labyrinth of lanes, cross-streets, and blind alleys, which encircles the ancient sepulchre of the Holy Innocents, and which is much like a skein of thread tangled by a playful kitten. Here are streets with but little logic, said Gringoire, lost in the myriad windings which led back incessantly to their original starting point, but amid which the damsel pursued a path with which she seemed very familiar— never hesitating, and walking more and more swiftly. As for him, he would not have had the least idea where he was if he had not caught a glimpse, at the corner of a street, of the octagonal mass of the pillory of the markets, whose pierced top stood out in sharp, dark outlines against a window still lighted in the Rue Verdelet. A few moments before, he had attracted the young girl's attention— she had several times turned her head anxiously towards him. Once she had even stopped short, and taken advantage of a ray of light which escaped from a half-open bake-shop, to study him earnestly from head to foot. Then, having cast that glance, Gringoire saw her make the little grimace which he had already noted, and then she passed on. It gave Gringoire food for thought— there was certainly a leaven of scorn and mockery in that dainty grimace. He therefore began to hang his head, to count the paving stones, and to follow the young girl at a somewhat greater distance, when at the turn of a street which hid her from his sight, he heard her utter a piercing scream. He hastened on. The street was full of dark shadows. Still, A bit of toe soaked in oil, which burned in an iron cage at the foot of the image of the holy virgin at the street corner, enabled Gringoire to see the gypsy girl struggling in the arms of two men who were trying to stifle her cries. The poor little goat, in great alarm, lowered its horns and bleated piteously. "'This way, gentlemen of the watch,' shouted Gringoire, and he rushed boldly forward." one of the men who held the girl turned towards him. It was the formidable figure of Quasimodo. Gringoire did not take flight, but neither did he advance another step. Quasimodo approached him, flung him four paces away upon the pavement with a single backstroke, and plunged rapidly into the darkness, bearing the girl, thrown over one arm like a silken scarf. His companion followed him, and the poor goat ran behind with its plaintive bleat. "'Murder! Murder!' shrieked the unfortunate gypsy. "'Halt, wretches, and let that wench go!' abruptly exclaimed, in a voice of thunder, a horseman who appeared suddenly from the next cross street. It was a captain of the king's archers, armed from head to foot and broadsword in hand." He tore the gypsy girl from the arms of the astounded Quasimodo, laid her across his saddle, and just as the redoubtable humpback, recovering from his surprise, rushed upon him to get back his prey, some fifteen or sixteen archers, who were close behind their captain, appeared, two-edged swords in hand. They were a squadron of the royal troops going on duty as extra watchmen, by order of Master Robert de Stuteville provost warden of Paris. Quasimodo was surrounded, seized, garroted. He roared, he foamed at the mouth, he bit. And had it been daylight, no doubt his face alone, made yet more hideous by rage, would have routed the whole squadron. But by night he was stripped of his most tremendous weapon—his ugliness. His companion had disappeared during the struggle— The gypsy girl sat gracefully erect upon the officer's saddle, placing both hands upon the young man's shoulders, and gazing fixedly at him for some seconds, as if charmed by his beauty and the timely help which he had just rendered her. Then, breaking the silence, she said, her sweet voice sounding even sweeter than usual, "'What is your name, Mr. Officer?' Captain Phoebus de Chateaupers at your service, my pretty maid," replied the officer, drawing himself up. "Thank you," said she; and while Captain Phoebus twirled his mustache, cut in Burgundian fashion, she slipped from the horse like an arrow falling to the earth, and fled. A flash of lightning could not have vanished more swiftly. "By the Pope's head," said the captain. Ordering Quasimodo's bonds to be tightened, I had rather have kept the wench. What would you have, captain? said one of his men. The bird has flown, the bat remains. Chapter 5 The Rest of the Inconveniences Gringoire, still dizzy from his fall, lay stretched on the pavement before the figure of the Blessed Virgin at the corner of the street. Little by little he regained his senses. At first he was for some moments floating in a sort of half-drowsy reverie, which was far from unpleasant, in which the airy figures of the gypsy and her goat were blended with the weight of Quasimodo's fist. This state of things did not last long. A somewhat sharp sensation of cold on that part of his body in contact with the pavement roused him completely. "'and brought his mind back to realities once more. "'Why do I feel so cold?' said he abruptly. "'He then discovered that he was lying in the middle of the gutter. "'Deuce take the humpbacked cyclop,' he muttered, "'and he tried to rise. "'But he was too dizzy and too much bruised. "'He was forced to remain where he was. "'However, his hand was free. "'He stopped his nose and resigned himself to his fate.' The mud of Paris, thought he, for he felt very sure that the gutter must be his lodging for the night. And what should we do in a lodging if we do not think? The mud of Paris is particularly foul. It must contain a vast amount of volatile and nitrous salts. Moreover, such is the opinion of Master Nicholas Flamel and of the Hermetics. The word Hermetics suddenly reminded him of the archdeacon Claude Frollo. He recalled the violent scene which he had just witnessed, how the gypsy struggled with two men, how Quasimodo had a companion, and the morose and haughty face of the archdeacon passed confusedly through his mind. That would be strange, he thought, and he began to erect upon these data and this basis the fantastic edifice of hypothesis that card-house of philosophers, then suddenly returning once more to reality. "'But there! I'm freezing!' he exclaimed. The situation was in fact becoming more and more unbearable. Every drop of water in the gutter took a particle of heat from Gringoire's loins, and the temperature of his body and the temperature of the gutter began to balance each other in a very disagreeable fashion.' an annoyance of quite another kind all at once beset him. A band of children, those little barefoot savages who have haunted the streets of Paris in all ages under the generic name of Gammons, and who, when we too were children, threw stones at us every day as we hastened home from school because our trousers were destitute of holes. A swarm of these young scamps ran towards the crossroads where Gringoire lay, with shouts and laughter which seemed to show but little regard for their neighbor's sleep. They dragged after them a shapeless sack, and the mere clatter of their wooden shoes would have been enough to rouse the dead. Gringoire, who was not quite lifeless yet, rose to a sitting position. "'Allo, Anacendendèche! "'Allo there, jean pince bord they bawled at the top of their voices." Old Eustache Moubon, the junk man at the corner, has just died. We've got his mattress. We're going to build a bonfire. This is the Fleming's day. And lo, they flung the mattress directly upon Gringoire, near whom they stood without seeing him. At the same time, one of them snatched up a wisp of straw, which he lighted at the good virgin's lamp. Christ's body, groaned Gringoire. Am I going to be too hot next? It was a critical moment. He would soon be caught betwixt fire and water. He made a supernatural effort, such an effort as a coiner of false money might make when about to be boiled alive and struggling to escape. He rose to his feet, hurled the mattress back upon the little rascals, and fled. "'Holy virgin!' screamed the boys. "'The junk dealer has returned!' And they, too, took to their heels." the mattress was left mistress of the battlefield. Belforé, Father Le Juge, and Corrozet affirmed that it was picked up next day with great pomp by the clergy of the quarter, and placed in the treasury of the Church of the Holy Opportunity, where the sacristan earned a handsome income until 1789 by his Tales of the Wonderful Miracle performed by the Statue of the Virgin at the corner of the Rue Moconcelle which had, by its mere presence on the memorable night of January 6, 1482, exorcised the spirit of the defunct Eustache Moubon, who, to outwit the devil, had, in dying, maliciously hidden his soul in his mattress. CHAPTER six: THE BROKEN JUG After running for some time as fast as his legs would carry him, without knowing whither, plunging headlong around many a street corner, striding over many a gutter, traversing many a lane and blind alley, seeking to find escape and passage through all the windings of the old streets about the markets. Exploring, in his panic fear, what the elegant Latin of the charters calls tota via cheminum et viaria, all the roads, passageways, and paths, our poet came to a sudden stop, partly from lack of breath, and partly because he was collared, as it were, by a dilemma which had just dawned upon his mind. "'It strikes me, Pierre Gringoire,' said he to himself, laying his finger to his forehead, "'that you are running as if you had lost your wits. Those little scamps were quite as much afraid of you as you were of them. It strikes me, I tell you, that you heard the clatter of their wooden shoes as they fled to the south,' while you took refuge to the north. Now, one of two things. Either they ran away, and then the mattress, which they must have forgotten in their fright, is just the hospitable bed which you have been running after since morning, and which Our Lady miraculously sends you to reward you for writing a morality play in her honor, accompanied by triumphal processions and mummeries. Or else the boys did not run away, and in that case, they have set fire to the mattress, and there you have just exactly the good fire that you need to cheer, warm, and dry you. In either case, whether as a good fire or a good bed, the mattress is a gift from heaven. The Blessed Virgin Mary, at the corner of the Rue Conseil, may have killed Eustache Moubon for this very purpose, and it is sheer madness in you to betake yourself to such frantic flight like a Picard running before a Frenchman, leaving behind what you are seeking before you, and you are a fool. Then he retraced his steps, and fumbling and ferreting his way, snuffing the breeze, and his ear on the alert, he strove to find the blessed mattress once more, but in vain. He saw nothing but intersecting houses, blind alleys, and crossings, IN THE MIDST OF WHICH HE DOUBTED AND HESITATED CONTINUALLY, MORE HINDERED AND MORE CLOSELY ENTANGLED IN THIS CONFUSION OF DARK LANES THAN HE WOULD HAVE BEEN IN THE VERY labyrinth OF THE HOTEL DE Tournelle. AT LAST HE LOST PATIENCE, AND EXCLAIMED SOLEMNLY, CURSE ALL THESE CROSSINGS, THE DEVIL HIMSELF MUST HAVE MADE THEM IN THE LIKENESS OF HIS PITCHFORK. THIS OUTBURST COMFORTED HIM SOMEWHAT and a sort of reddish reflection which he observed at this instant at the end of a long, narrow lane, quite restored his wonted spirits. "'Heaven be praised,' said he. "'Yonder it is. There's my mattress burning briskly.' And comparing himself to the boatman, foundering by night, he added piously, "'Salve, Maris Stella." Did he address this fragment of a litany to the Holy Virgin?' or to the mattress. That we are wholly unable to say. He had taken but a few steps down the long lane, which was steep, unpaved, and more and more muddy and sloping, when he remarked a very strange fact. It was not empty. Here and there, along its length, crawled certain vague and shapeless masses, all proceeding towards the light which flickered at the end of the street. Like those clumsy insects which creep at night from one blade of grass to another towards a shepherd's fire. Nothing makes a man bolder than the sense of an empty pocket. Gringoire continued to advance, and had soon overtook that larva which dragged itself most lazily along behind the others. As he approached, he saw that it was nothing but a miserable cripple without any legs, strapped into a bowl and hopping along as best he might on his hands, like a wounded spider which has but two legs left. Just as he passed this kind of human insect, it uttered a piteous appeal to him. La buena mancha, señor, la buena mancha, which means alms. Devil fly away with you, said Gringoire, and with me too, if I know what you're talking about. And he passed on. He came up with another of these perambulating masses, and examined it. It was another cripple, both lame and one armed, and so lame and so armless that the complicated system of crutches and wooden limbs which supported him made him look like a mason's scaffolding walking off by itself. Gringoire, who loved stately and classic similes, compared the fellow in fancy to Vulcan's living tripod. The living tripod greeted him as he passed, by holding his hat at the level of Gringoire's chin, as if it had been a barber's basin, and shouting in his ears, Senor caballero, para comprar un pedazo de pan, which means, gentlemen, to buy a piece of bread. It seems, said Gringoire, that he talks too, but it's an ugly language, and he is better off than I am if he understands it then, clapping his hand to his head with a sudden change of idea. By the way, what the devil did they mean this morning by their Esmeralda? He tried to quicken his pace, but for the third time something blocked the way. This something, or rather this someone, was a blind man, a little blind man, with a bearded Jewish face, who, feeling about him with a stick and towed by a big dog, "'snuffled out to him with a Hungarian accent, "'Facitote Caritatum. "'That's right,' said Pierre Gringoire. "'Here's one at last who speaks a Christian tongue. "'I must have a very charitable air "'to make all these creatures come to me for alms "'when my purse is so lean. "'My friend,' and he turned to the blind man. "'I sold my last shirt last week. "'That is to say, since you understand the language of Cicero.' Oh, my goodness, Lisa here, I'm going to do my best. Vendidi hebdomade nuper transita meam ultimam chemizam, which means, I sold my last shirt last week. <laughs> so saying, he turned his back on the blind man and went his way. But the blind man began to mend his steps at the same time. And lo and behold, the cripple and the man bound into the bowl hurried along after them with a great clatter of bowl and crutches over the pavement. Then all three, tumbling over each other in their haste at the heels of poor Gringoire, began to sing their several songs. Caritatum, said the blind man. La buona mancha, sang the man in the bowl. And the lame man took up the phrase with, Un pedazo de pan. Gringoire stopped his ears, exclaiming, "'Oh, Tower of Babel!' He began to run. The blind man ran. The lame man ran. The man in the bowl ran. And then, the farther he went down the street, the more thickly did cripples, blind men, and legless men swarm around him, with armless men, one-eyed men, and lepers with their sores, some coming out of houses, some from adjacent streets, some from cellar-holes, howling, yelling, bellowing, all hobbling and limping, rushing towards the light, and wallowing in the mire like slugs after a shower. Gringoire, still followed by his three persecutors, and not knowing what would happen next, walked timidly through the rest, going around the lame, striding over the cripples, his feet entangled in this ant hill of deformity and disease— "'like that English captain caught fast by an army of land-crabs. "'He thought of retracing his steps, but it was too late. "'The entire legion had closed up behind him, "'and his three beggars pressed him close. "'He therefore went on, driven alike by this irresistible stream, "'by fear and by a dizzy feeling which made all this seem a horrible dream. "'At last he reached the end of the street.' it opened into a vast square, where a myriad scattered lights twinkled through the dim fog of night. Gringoire hurried forward, hoping by the swiftness of his legs to escape the three infirm specters who had fastened themselves upon him. Onde vas, hombre? Where are you going?' cried the lame man. "'throwing away his crutches and running after him "'with the best pair of legs that ever measured "'a geometric pace upon the pavements of Paris. "'Then the man in the bowl, erect upon his feet, "'clapped his heavy iron-bound bowl upon Gringoire's head, "'and the blind man glared at him with flaming eyes. "'Where am I?' asked the terrified poet. "'In the court of miracles,' replied a fourth specter, who had just accosted them. "'By my soul,' replied Gringoire, "'I do indeed behold blind men seeing "'and lame men running. "'But where is the Saviour?' "'They answered with an evil burst of laughter. "'The poor poet glanced around him. "'He was indeed in that fearful court of miracles, "'which no honest man had ever entered at such an hour.' the magic circle within whose lines the officers of the Châtelet and the provost's men, who ventured to penetrate it, disappeared in morsels. A city of thieves, a hideous wart upon the face of Paris, the sewer, whence escaped each morning, returning to stagnate at night, that rivulet of vice, mendicity, and vagrancy, perpetually overflowing the streets of every great capital." a monstrous hive, receiving nightly all the drones of the social order with their booty. The lying hospital, where the gypsy, the unfrocked monk, the ruined scholar, the scapegrace of every nation, Spanish, Italian, and German, and of every creed, Jew, Christian, Mohammedan, and idolater, covered with painted sores, beggars by day, were transformed into robbers by night. In short, a huge cloakroom, used at this period for the dressing and undressing of all the actors in the everlasting comedy enacted in the streets of Paris by theft, prostitution, and murder. It was a vast square, irregular and ill-paved, like every other square in Paris at that time. Fires, around which swarmed strange groups, gleamed here and there. People came and went— and shouted and screamed. There was a sound of shrill laughter, of the wailing of children and the voices of women. The hands, the heads of this multitude, black against the luminous background, made a thousand uncouth gestures. At times, a dog which looked like a man, or a man who looked like a dog, passed over the space of ground lit up by the flames, blended with huge and shapeless shadows. The limits of race and species seemed to fade away in this city, as in some pandemonium. Men, women, beasts, age, sex, health, disease, all seemed to be in common among these people. All was blended, mingled, confounded, superimposed. Each partook of all. The feeble flickering light of the fires enabled Gringoire to distinguish, in spite of his alarm, all around the vast square, a hideous framing of ancient houses, whose worm-eaten, worn, misshapen fronts, each pierced by one or two lighted garret windows, looked to him in the darkness like the huge heads of old women ranged in a circle, monstrous and malign, watching and winking at the infernal revels. It was like a new world, unknown, unheard of, deformed, creeping, swarming, fantastic. Gringoire, more and more affrighted, caught by the three beggars as if by three pairs of pincers, confused by the mass of other faces which snarled and grimaced about him. The wretched Gringoire tried to recover sufficient presence of mind to recall whether it was Saturday or not. But his efforts were in vain. The thread of his memory and his thoughts was broken. And, doubting everything, hesitating between what he saw and what he felt, he asked himself the unanswerable questions. If I be I, are these things really so? If these things be so, am I really I? At this instant, a distinct cry arose from the buzzing mob which surrounded him. "'Take him to the king! Take him to the king!' Holy Virgin, muttered Gringoire, the king of this region should be a goat. To the king, to the king, repeated every voice. He was dragged away. Each one vied with the other in fastening his claws upon him. But the three beggars never loosed their hold and tore him from the others, howling, He is ours. The poet's feeble doublet breathed its last in the struggle. As they crossed the horrid square, his vertigo vanished. After walking a few steps, a sense of reality returned. He began to grow accustomed to the atmosphere of the place. At first, from his poetic head, or perhaps quite simply and quite prosaically, from his empty stomach, there had arisen certain fumes—a vapor, as it were—which, spreading itself between him and other objects, prevented him from seeing anything save through a confused nightmare mist. Through those dreamlike shadows which render every outline vague, distort every shape, combine all objects into exaggerated groups, and enlarge things into chimeras and men into ghosts. By degrees this delusion gave way to a less wild and less deceitful vision. Reality dawned upon him, blinded him ran against him, and bit by bit destroyed the frightful poetry with which he had at first fancied himself surrounded. He could not fail to see that he was walking, not in the sticks, but in the mire, that he was pushed and elbowed, not by demons, but by thieves, that it was not his soul, but merely his life which was in danger, since he lacked that precious conciliator which pleads so powerfully with the bandit for the honest man—a purse. Finally, examining the revels more closely and with greater calmness, he descended from the witch's Sabbath to the pothouse. The Court of Miracles was indeed only a pothouse, but a pothouse of thieves as red with blood as with wine." The spectacle presented to his eyes when his tattered escort at last landed him at his journey's end was scarcely fitted to bring him back to poetry, even were it the poetry of hell. It was more than ever the prosaic and brutal reality of the tavern. If we were not living in the fifteenth century, we should say that Gringoire had fallen from Michelangelo to Calo. Around a large fire burning upon a great round flagstone, and lapping with its flames the rusty legs of a trivet empty for the moment, stood a number of worm-eaten tables here and there, in dire confusion, no lackey of any geometrical pretensions having deigned to adjust their parallelism, or at least to see that they did not cross each other at angles too unusual. Upon these tables glittered various pots and jugs, dripping with wine and beer, and around these jugs were seated numerous bacchanalian faces, purple with fire and wine. One big-bellied man with a jolly face was administering noisy kisses to a brawny, thick-set woman. A rubby, or old vagrant, whistled as he loosed the bandages from his mock wound and rubbed his sound, healthy knee— which had been swathed all day in ample ligatures. Beyond him was a mumper, preparing his visitation from God, his sore leg, with suet and ox-blood. Two tables farther on, a sham pilgrim, in complete pilgrim dress, was spelling out the lament of said Wren, not forgetting the snuffle and the twang. In another place, a young scamp who imposed on the charitable by pretending to have been bitten by a mad dog, was taking a lesson of an old dummy-chucker in the art of frothing at the mouth by chewing a bit of soap. By their side, a dropsical man was reducing his size, making four or five doxies hold their nose as they sat at the same table, quarreling over a child which they had stolen during the evening— all circumstances which, two centuries later, seemed so ridiculous to the court, as Soval says, that they served as diversion to the king and as the opening to a royal ballet entitled Night, divided into four parts, and danced at the Petit Bourbon Theatre. Never, adds an eyewitness in 1653, have the sudden changes of the Court of Miracles been more happily hit off. Ben Sarad prepared us for them by some very fine verses. Coarse laughter was heard on every hand, with vulgar songs. Every man expressed himself in his own way, carping and swearing, without heeding his neighbor. Some hobnobbed, and quarrels arose from the clash of their mugs, and the breaking of their mugs was the cause of many torn rags. A big dog squatted on his tail, gazing into the fire. Some children took part in the orgies. The stolen child cried and screamed, while another, a stout boy of four, sat on a high bench with his legs dangling, his chin just coming above the table, and not speaking a word. A third was gravely smearing the table with melted tallow as it ran from the candle. Another, a little fellow crouched in the mud, almost lost in a kettle which he was scraping with a potsherd. "'making a noise which would have distracted Stradivarius. "'A cask stood near the fire, and a beggar sat on the cask. "'This was the king upon his throne. "'The three who held Gringoire led him up to this cask, "'and all the revelers were hushed for a moment, "'except the cauldron inhabited by the child. "'Gringoire dared not breathe or raise his eyes. "'Hombre, quita tu sombrero.' Man, remove your hat, said one of the three scoundrels who held him, and before he had made up his mind what this meant, another snatched his hat, a shabby headpiece, to be sure, but still useful on sunny or on rainy days. Gringoire sighed. But the king, from the height of his barrel, addressed him. Who is this varlet? Gringoire started. The voice, although threatening in tone, reminded him of another voice which had that same morning dealt the first blow to his mystery by whining out from the audience, "'Charity, kind souls!' He lifted his head. It was indeed Clopin-Toi-Fu. Clopin-Toi-Fu, decked with his royal insignia, had not a tatter more or less than usual. The wound on his arm had vanished." In his hand he held one of those whips with wit leather thongs then used by sergeants of the wand to keep back the crowd and called boulet. Upon his head he wore a circular coif closed at the top, but it was hard to say whether it was a child's pad or a king's crown, so similar are the two things. Still, Gringoire without knowing why felt his hopes revive when he recognized the accursed beggar of the great hall and the King of the Court of Miracles. Master, stuttered he, my lord, sire, how shall I address you? he said at last, reaching the culminating point of his crescendo, and not knowing how to rise higher or to redescend. My lord, your majesty, or comrade, call me what you will, but make haste, What have you to say in your defense?' "'In your defense,' thought Gringoire. "'I don't like the sound of that.' He resumed, stammeringly. "'I am he who this morning—' "'By the devil's claws,' interrupted Clopin. "'Your name, varlet, and nothing more. "'Hark ye! "'You stand before three mighty sovereigns. "'Me, Clopin Troifu, king of Tunis.' Successor to the Grand Coeur, the King of Rogues, Lord Paramount of the Kingdom of Kant. Matthias Hungadi Spicali, Duke of Egypt and Bohemia, that yellow old boy you see yonder with a cloud about his head. Guillaume Rousseau, Emperor of Galilee, that fat fellow who pays no heed to us but caresses that wanton. We are your judges. You have entered the Kingdom of Kant— the land of thieves, without being a member of the confraternity. You have violated the privileges of our city. You must be punished, unless you be either prig, mumber, or cadger. That is, in the vulgar tongue of honest folks, either thief, beggar, or tramp. Are you anything of the sort? Justify yourself. State your character. Alas, said Gringoire, I have not that honor. I am the author. Enough, cried Toifu, not allowing him to finish his sentence. You must be hanged. Quite a simple matter, my honest citizens. As you treat our people when they enter your domain, so we treat yours when they intrude among us. The law which you mete out to vagabonds, the vagabonds mete out to you. It is your own fault if it be evil." It is quite necessary that we should occasionally see an honest man grin through a hempen collar. It makes the thing honorable. Come, friend, divide your rags cheerfully among these young ladies. I will have you hanged to amuse the vagabonds, and you shall give them your purse to pay for a drink. If you have any mummeries to perform, over yonder in that mortar there's a capital God the Father in stone, which we stole from the church of the saint pierre au boeuf You have four minutes to fling your soul at his head. This was a terrible speech. Well said upon my soul. Clopin Troyfou preaches as well as any pope, exclaimed the emperor of Galilee, smashing his jug to prop up his table. Noble emperors and kings, said Gringoire with great coolness, for his courage had mysteriously returned, and he spoke firmly. "'You do not consider what you're doing. My name is Pierre Gringoire. I am the poet whose play was performed this morning in the great hall of the palace.' "'Oh, is it you, sirrah?' said Clopin. "'I was there, God's wounds. Well, comrade, because you bored us this morning, is that any reason why we should not hang you tonight?" I shall have hard work to get off, thought Gringoire. But yet he made one more effort. I don't see, said he, why poets should not be classed with vagabonds. Aesop was a vagrant. Homer was a beggar. Mercury was a thief. Clopin interrupted him. I believe you mean to cousin us with your lingo. Good God, be hanged, and don't make such a row about it. "'Excuse me, my lord, king of Tunis,' replied Gringoire, disputing every inch of the ground. "'Is it worth while? An instant. Hear me. You will not condemn me unheard!' His melancholy voice was indeed lost in the uproar around him. The little boy scraped his kettle more vigorously than ever, and, to cap the climax, an old woman had just placed a frying-pan full of fat upon the trivet." and it crackled over the flames with a noise like the shouts of an army of children in chase of some masquerader. However, clopin seemed to be conferring for a moment with the Duke of Egypt and the Emperor of Galilee, the latter being entirely drunk. Then he cried out sharply, "'Silence, I say!' And as the kettle and the frying-pan paid no heed, but kept up their duet, he leaped from his cask, dealt a kick to the kettle, which rolled ten paces or more with the child, another kick to the frying-pan, which upset all the fat into the fire, and then gravely reascended his throne, utterly regardless of the little one's stifled sobs or the grumbling of the old woman whose supper had vanished in brilliant flames. Troifu made a sign, and the duke, the emperor, the arch-thieves, and the ganoffs ranged themselves around him in the form of a horseshoe, Gringoire still roughly grasped by the shoulders, occupying the center. It was a semicircle of rags, of tatters, of tinsel, of pitchforks, of axes, of staggering legs, of bare brawny arms, of sordid, dull, stupid faces. In the middle of this round table of beggary, Clopin Troifoux reigned preeminent, as the doge of this senate, the king of this assembly of peers, the pope of this conclave, preeminent in the first place by the height of his cask, then by a peculiarly haughty, savage, and tremendous air, which made his eyes flash, and amended in his fierce profile the bestial type of the vagrant. He seemed a wild boar among swine. Hark ye, he said to Gringoire, caressing his shapeless chin with his horny hand. I see no reason why you should not be hanged. To be sure, you seem to dislike the idea, and it's very plain that you worthy sits are not used to it. You've got an exaggerated idea of the thing. After all, we wish you no harm. There is one way of getting you out of the difficulty for the time being. Will you join us?" My reader may fancy the effect of this proposal upon Gringoire, who saw his life escaping him "'and had already begun to lose his hold upon it. "'He clung to it once more with vigor. "'I will indeed, with all my heart,' said he. "'Do you agree,' resumed Clopin, "'to enroll yourself among the gentry of the chive?' "'Of the chive, exactly,' answered Gringoire. "'Do you acknowledge yourself a member of the rogues' brigade?' "'continued the king of Tunis. "'Of the rogues' brigade,' a subject of the kingdom of Kant, of the kingdom of Kant, a vagrant, a vagrant, at heart, at heart. I would call your attention to the fact, added the king, that you will be hanged none the less." The devil, said the poet. Only, continued Clopin, quite unmoved, you will be hanged later, with more ceremony, at the cost of the good city of Paris, on a fine stone gallows, and by honest men. That is some consolation. As you say, responded Gringoire. There are other advantages. As a member of the rogues' brigade, you will have to pay no taxes for pavements, for the poor, or for lighting the streets, to all of which the citizens of Paris are subject. So be it, said the poet. I consent. I am a vagrant, a canter, a member of the rogues' brigade, a man of the chive, what you will. And I was all this long ago, Sir King of Tunis, for I am a philosopher. Okay, here I go with the Latin again. Et omnia in philosophia, omnes in philosopho continator, as you know. And I think that means, as all is contained in philosophy, all is contained in the philosopher. The King of Tunis frowned. What do you take me for, mate? What Hungarian Jews' gibberish are you giving us? I don't know, Hebrew. I'm no Jew if I am a thief. I don't even steal now. I am above that. I kill. Cutthroat, yes. Cutpurse, no. Gringoire tried to slip in some excuse between these brief phrases, which anger made yet more abrupt. I beg your pardon, my lord. It is not Hebrew. It is Latin. "'I tell you,' replied Clopin, furiously, "'that I am no Jew, and that I will have you hanged, "'by the synagogue I will, "'together with that paltry Judean cadger beside you, "'whom I mightily hope I may some day see nailed to a counter "'like the counterfeit coin that he is.' "'So saying, he pointed to the little Hungarian Jew "'with the beard, who had accosted Gringoire,' with his Facitote Caritatum, and who, understanding no other language, was amazed at the wrath which the king of Tunis vented upon him. At last my lord Clopin became calm. "'So, Varlet,' he said to our poet, "'you wish to become a vagrant?' "'Undoubtedly,' replied the poet. "'It is not enough merely to wish,' said the surly Clopin." Good will never added an onion to the soup, and is good for nothing but a passport to paradise. Now, paradise and cant are two distinct things. To be received into the kingdom of Kant, you must prove that you are good for something, and to prove this, you must fumble the snot. This one, thankfully, has a footnote in my edition, which says, Search the mannequin. I will fumble, said Gringoire. As much as ever you like, Clopin made a sign. A number of canters stepped from the circle and returned immediately, bringing a couple of posts finished at the lower end with broad wooden feet, which made them stand firmly upon the ground. At the upper end of the two posts, they arranged a crossbeam. The whole forming a very pretty portable gallows, which Gringoire had the pleasure of seeing erected before him in the twinkling of an eye. Nothing was wanting, not even the rope, which swung gracefully from the cross beam. "'What are they going to do?' wondered Gringoire, with some alarm. A sound of bells which he heard at the same moment put an end to his anxiety. It was a mannequin, or puppet, that the vagrants hung by the neck to the cord, a sort of scarecrow, dressed in red, and so loaded with little bells and hollow brasses, that thirty Castilian mules might have been tricked out with them. These countless tinklers jingled for some time with the swaying of the rope. Then the sound died away by degrees, and finally ceased when the manikin had been restored to a state of complete immobility by that law of the pendulum which has superseded the clepsydra and the hour-glass. Then Clopin— Showing Gringoire a rickety old footstool placed under the mannequin, said, Climb up there. The devil, objected Gringoire, I shall break my neck. Your stool halts like one of Marshall's couplets. One foot has six syllables, and one foot has but five. Climb up, repeated Clopin. Gringoire mounted the stool, and succeeded though not without considerable waving of head and arms, in recovering his center of gravity. "'Now,' resumed the king of Tunis, "'twist your right foot round your left leg, and stand on tiptoe with your left foot.' "'My lord,' said Gringoire, "'are you absolutely determined to make me break a limb?' Clopin tossed his head. "'Hark ye, mate, you talk too much.' I will tell you in a couple of words what I expect you to do. You are to stand on tiptoe, as I say. In that fashion you can reach the mannequins' pockets. You are to search them. You are to take out a purse which you will find there. And if you do all this without ringing a single bell, it is well, you shall become a vagrant. We shall have nothing more to do but to baste you with blows for a week." Zounds. "'I shall take good care,' said Gringoire. "'And if I ring the bells, then you shall be hanged. "'Do you understand?' "'I don't understand at all,' answered Gringoire. "'Listen to me once more. "'You are to search the mannequin and steal his purse. "'If but a single bell stir in the act, you shall be hanged. "'Do you understand that?' "'Good,' said Gringoire. "'I understand that. "'What next?' If you manage to get the purse without moving the bells, you are a vagrant, and you shall be basted with blows for seven days in succession. You understand now, I suppose? No, my lord, I no longer understand. Where is the advantage? I shall be hanged in the one case, beaten in the other? And as a vagrant, added Clopin, and as a vagrant, does that count for nothing?' IT IS FOR YOUR OWN GOOD THAT WE SHALL BEAT YOU, TO HARDEN YOU AGAINST BLOWS. MANY THANKS, REPLIED THE POET. COME, MAKE HASTE, SAID THE KING, STAMPING ON HIS CASK, WHICH RE-ECHOED LIKE A VAST DRUM. FUMBLE THE SNOT, AND BE DONE WITH IT. I WARN YOU, ONCE FOR ALL, THAT IF I HEAR BUT ONE TINKLE, YOU SHALL TAKE THE mannikin's PLACE the company of canters applauded Clopin's words, and ranged themselves in a ring around the gallows with such pitiless laughter that Gringoire saw that he amused them too much not to have everything to fear from them. His only hope lay in the slight chance of succeeding in the terrible task imposed upon him. He decided to risk it, but not without first addressing a fervent prayer to the mannequin whom he was to plunder— and who seemed more easily moved than the vagrants. The myriad little bells with their tiny brazen tongues seemed to him like so many vipers with gaping jaws, ready to hiss and sting. "'Oh,' he murmured, "'is it possible that my life depends upon the slightest quiver "'of the least of these bells?' "'Oh,' he added with clasped hands, "'do not ring, ye bells,' "'Tinkle not, ye tinklers! Jingle not, ye jinglers!' He made one more attempt to melt Fu. "'And if a breeze spring up?' he asked. "'You will be hanged,' answered the other, without hesitating. Seeing that neither respite, delay, nor subterfuge was possible, he made a desperate effort. He twisted his right foot round his left leg, stood tiptoe on his left foot, and stretched out his arm. But just as he touched the mannequin, his body, now resting on one foot, tottered upon the stool, which had but three. He strove mechanically to cling to the figure, lost his balance, and fell heavily to the ground, deafened and stunned by the fatal sound of the myriad bells of the mannequin, which, yielding to the pressure of his hand, first revolved upon its own axis, then swung majestically to and fro between the posts. A curse upon it, he cried as he fell, and he lay as if dead, face downwards. Still he heard the fearful peal above his head, and the devilish laugh of the vagrants, and the voice of Toifu, as it said, Lift up the knave, and hang him with a will. He rose, the mannequin had already been taken down to make room for him. The canters made him mount the stool. Clopin stepped up to him, passed the rope around his neck, and, clapping him on the shoulder, exclaimed, "'Farewell, mate. You can't escape now, though you have the digestion of the pope himself.' The word, mercy, died on Gringoire's lips. He gazed around him, but without hope. Every man was laughing. "Belvigne de l'Etoile,' said the King of Tunis to a huge vagrant who started from the ranks—climb upon the cross-beam. de L'Etoile nimbly climbed the cross-beam, and in an instant Gringoire, raising his eyes with terror, beheld him squatting upon it, above his head. Now, continued Clopin Troifoux, when I clap my hands, do you, André Le Rouge, knock away the footstool from under him? You, François Champreune, Hang on to the knave's feet, and you, Belvigne, jump down upon his shoulders, and all three at once, do you hear? Gringoire shuddered. Are you ready? said Clopin Treufo to the three canters, prepared to fall upon Gringoire. The poor sufferer endured a moment of horrible suspense while Clopin calmly pushed into the fire with his foot a few vine branches which the flame had not yet kindled. "'Are you ready?' he repeated, and he opened his hands to clap. "'A second more, and all would have been over.' "'But he paused, as if struck by a sudden thought. "'One moment,' said he, "'I forgot. It is our custom never to hang a man without asking if there be any woman who will have him. "'Comrade, it's your last chance. You must marry a tramp or the rope.' This gypsy law, strange as it may seem to the reader, is still written out in full in the ancient English code. See Burrington's observations. Gringoire breathed again. This was the second time that he had been restored to life within the half hour, so he dared not feel too confident. "'Hello,' cried Clopin, remounting his cask. "'Hello there, women, females!' Is there among you, from the old witch to her cat, a wench who'll take this scurvy knave? Hello, Colette Lacharon, Elizabeth Truvan, Simone Jodouin, Marie Pierrebeau, Ton La Long, Berard Fanuel, Michel Genay, Claude Ronjolay, Maturing Giraudru. Hello, Isabola Thierry. Come and look. A man for nothing. Who'll take him? Gringoire, in his wretched plight, was doubtless far from tempting. The vagabond women seemed but little moved by the offer. The luckless fellow heard them answer, No, no, hang him. That will make sport for us all. Three, however, stepped from the crowd to look him over. The first was a stout, square-faced girl. She examined the philosopher's pitiable doublet most attentively. The stuff was worn, and more full of holes than a furnace for roasting chestnuts. The girl made a wry face. An old clout, she grumbled, and addressing Gringoire, "'Let's look at your cloak.' "'I have lost it,' said Gringoire. "'Your hat?' "'Someone took it from me. "'Your shoes. "'The soles are almost worn through. "'Your purse?' "'Alas,' faltered Gringoire, "'I have not a penny.' "'Be hanged to you, then, and be thankful,' replied the tramp, "'turning her back on him. "'The second, old, weather-beaten, wrinkled and ugly, "'hideous enough to be conspicuous even in the court of miracles, "'walked round and round Gringoire. "'He almost trembled lest she should accept him. "'But she muttered, "'He's too thin,' and took her leave.' The third was a young girl, quite rosy and not very ugly. "'Save me,' whispered the poor devil. She looked at him a moment with a compassionate air, then looked down, began to plait up her skirt, and seemed uncertain. He watched her every motion. This was his last ray of hope. "'No,' said the young woman at last. "'No, Guillaume Longju would lick me.' and she went back to the crowd. Comrade, said Clopin waifu, you're down on your luck. Then, standing erect upon his cask, he cried, Will no one take this lot? Mimicking the tone of an auctioneer to the great entertainment of all. Will no one take it? Going, 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 and turning to the gallows with a nod, Gone. Belvigne de l'Etoile, Andre Le Rouge and Francois Champrune approached Gringoire. At this instant, a shout rose from the thieves Esmeralda! Esmeralda! Gringoire trembled and turned in the direction of the cry. The crowd opened and made way for a pure and radiant figure. It was the gypsy girl. Esmeralda, said Gringoire. "'astounded amidst his contending emotions "'at the suddenness with which that magic word "'connected all the various recollections of his day. "'This rare creature seemed to exercise sovereign sway "'through her beauty and her charm, "'even in the court of miracles. "'Thieves, beggars, and harlots stood meekly aside "'to let her pass, and their brutal faces "'brightened at her glance.' She approached the victim with her light step. Her pretty jolly followed her. Gringoire was more dead than alive. She gazed at him an instant in silence. "'Are you going to hang this man?' she gravely asked Clopin. "'Yes, sister,' replied the King of Tunis. "'Unless you'll take him for your husband.' She pouted her pretty lower lip. "'I'll take him,' said she." Gringoire here firmly believed that he had been dreaming ever since morning, and that this was the end of the dream. In fact, the sudden change of fortune, though charming, was violent. The slip noose was unfastened, the poet was helped from his stool. He was obliged to seat himself, so great was his agitation. The Duke of Egypt, without uttering a word, brought forward an earthen jug the gypsy girl offered it to Gringoire. Throw it down, she said to him. The jug was broken into four pieces. Brother, then said the Duke of Egypt, laying his hands on their heads. She is your wife. Sister, he is your husband. For four years. Go.